Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's been some time since we've been in the book of Deuteronomy. What we're going to do is we're going to do, uh, you know, as we started it last year, we're going to go all the way through to uh, Second Kings. So however long that takes us, that's what we're going to do. Uh, I think we're probably going to uh, finish Deuteronomy by Christmas, and then we'll start Joshua in the new year. Uh, but Deuteronomy 24 is where we left off at in June. Uh, continues some lessons concerning the Eighth Commandment, Thou shall not steal. So we'll look at the entire chapter this evening, uh, Deuteronomy 24. I'll begin reading at verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. He shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all the priests, the Levites, shall teach you. Just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge to you. If the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and shall be righteous to you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he, he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert justice to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. The Lord your God may bless you in all the works of the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not clean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Amen. Well, if you remember, the book of Deuteronomy is uh, given to Moses by God on the plains of Moab before the second generation enters into the promised land. 
Remember the first generation came to the promised land. They saw they were giants in the land. They got afraid. So God said they need to wander in the wilderness. First generation dies off except for Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb would then lead the second generation into the promised land. And so God, Moses gives them the covenant that God is making with them. That is how they are supposed to live as the covenant people in the land. It's rooted in God's goodness in bringing them up out of the land of Egypt and rooted in their special status as the people of God. So Deuteronomy really is a covenant uh, well, between God and Israel for life in the land. It's about uh, a temporal life in the land. If the people do what God says, there's going to be blessings in the land. If they do not, they're going to be kicked out of that land. And so the book really is structured like a covenant. If you remember, there's the preamble. That is, it highlights the parties of the covenant, God and Israel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Then there's the historical prologue, which talks about the history between the parties, chapter 1, 6 to the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, maybe to the end, or the end of chapter 4, begins the biggest section, namely the stipulations how Israel was supposed to live, what they were supposed to do, do this and live in the land. And a lot of ways, the way in which these stipulations unfold is based on the Ten Commandments. And certainly as the, the stipulations unfold, the big section, uh, there were more general commands, but now we've turned to and been in for a while, the specific stip stipulations, the specific case laws for Israel in the land of Canaan. That doesn't mean we can't glean some important principles, but that's important to remember. It was for Israel at a specific time, for a specific purpose, in a specific situation. And so we're continuing in the eighth commandment today, thou shall not steal. And back in June, we looked at Deuteronomy 23, which also is, has an eighth commandment emphasis, namely hospitality, how one ought to treat those around them. Well, we turn to chapter 24, which deals with protection, protection for the innocent in a greedy world, because there is a problem, unfortunately, in this vain world in which we live in, namely fraud and financial oppression, financial exploitation. The rich and the greedy can exploit those in need. Now, sometimes those in need can exploit the rich as well, but the emphasis seems to be in Deuteronomy 24 those who are, have more power might be more prone to lord it over those who are truly in need and treat them with less than, uh, less than their dignity deserves as image bearers. And ways in which this can happen is when perhaps uh, when the, the rich want a, a collateral for the loan, they take an essential item. Perhaps the rich don't respect privacy. They think they deserve uh, to, to, to own them, not just in that specific lending uh, uh, relationship, but in all matters of life. It's not paying on time sometimes, and also perverting justice and many other things we shall see as we go through. So really, chapter 24, you know, helps us see how we can love our neighbor as it pertains to the Eighth Commandment. And again, this is for Israel as a body politic, but that doesn't mean some general equity, that is justice behind the laws, can have some application for us today. So in Deuteronomy 24, Moses outlines commandments for Israelite society that financially protect the needy in a greedy world. That is, it's protection financially for the needy in a greedy world. That's the emphasis it seems to be here. Yes, there's some confusion or we died, there's some difficulty 
discerning how to structure it, how the laws fit together. That seems to be the overarching emphasis, integrity and protection when it comes to financial matters. And so we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, laws that protect families from financial exploitation. Just remember it's laws that protect families from financial exploitation, verses one through seven. Then secondly, we'll see laws that protect the poor from destitution, verses eight through 22. So laws that protect families and laws that protect the poor. So let's first look at laws that protect families from financial exploitation. And notice in verses one through four, we see laws concerning divorce. Now, verses one through three gives us the situation. Verse four gives us the actual prohibition or command based on that situation. And the, the reality, so we see there as it unfolds, we see when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And so we see the first husband and his wife. The problem is he finds no favor in her because of some uncleanness. Now, the meaning of uncleanness here is difficult to determine, but it's probably not adultery. Adultery typically was punishable by death. We don't see that happening here. We see that punishable by death in Deuteronomy 22. They also don't bring it to the elders to make sure that, that uh, the, the, the person actually engaged in adultery and they actually received the punishment that fits the crime. So that's not there either. And it's not so bad that the first husband isn't willing to remarry her after the second husband. So it's probably not adultery in this situation probably perhaps means some indecent thing, but not full adultery. Perhaps some say it could be a physical problem, but in reality, it just perhaps could even be whatever the man deems to be fit for him or unfit in his eyes only. And this squares with what we see in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, or I guess in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount with the Pharisees in mind, in Matthew 19, when he actually is speaking to the Pharisees, they, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus just wrote certificates of divorce for any willy-nilly thing. And the situation is probably the same here as well. God assumes divorce is going to happen. God assumes that people are not going to treat marriage properly. And so what God is doing here in a messy world is regulating uh, that situation to be able to protect the innocent. And the innocent actually in this case is going to be the wife. And hopefully we see that as we go through. He's not necessarily commenting on the permissibility of it, but highlighting how there ought to be checks and balances so that parties are protected in the situation. He'll highlight some of the reasons one might divorce another. And he, he refers to various uh, Jewish uh, um, uh, law writers, various Jewish uh, uh, um, uh, 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 I guess, scholars, uh, Hillel, Hillel being one of them, he says, and they suppose a man might divorce his wife for any ill qualities of mind in her, or for any ill or impudent behavior of hers, as if her husband saw her go abroad with her head uncovered and spinning in the streets, and so showing her naked arms to men, or having her garments slit on both sides, or washing in a bath with men, or where men used to wash, and talking with every man and joking with young men, or her voice is sonorous and noisy, 
or any disease of body as the leprosy and the like, or any blemishes as warts are upon her, or any disagreeable smell that might arise from any parts of the body from sweat or stinking breath. So perhaps it is the case the husband found something in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And so the divorce proceeds. He gives her a certificate of divorce. Uh, he gives her that, 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 uh, that, that certificate, puts it in her hand. It's a sign they're actually divorced. And in this situation, he does not have to give the dowry money back. Usually when marriages happened at the time, the parents would pay a dowry and give a dowry. He would get some dough out of the situation. And usually the party that was guilty uh, would either, if it was him, have to pay back the dowry. If it's her, uh, he does not have to do that. So he gets to keep the money, and that's important. And so he sends her away. She goes. She finds another husband. He, she marries him. Well, verse 2, when she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And then if for some reason he doesn't like her or he dies. So now she's been given a certificate of divorce as well. And then she or, or he passes away. So she's a free woman again. Notice the prohibition against the first husband. Then her husband, only him in this situation, who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. And notice, she has been defiled. Perhaps the, 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 what that means here is that she has been treated poorly. She has been treated like a hot potato passed around to two different men. And perhaps what it was, there was a loophole for the very reason of profit. For the very reason of financial gain. So you see what's going on here? The first husband doesn't like her. He gets to keep his money. She goes and marries another guy. And then uh, the, the guy dies. Now she's got that money. And so the first husband can then say, well, I'm going to go back to her. So he gains even more money. That's perhaps what is in view here. The reality of verses one through four, it's not necessarily a seventh commandment issue. It's actually an eighth commandment issue. And the reality is this lady was not meant to be used for financial gain in this situation. That perhaps could be in view. It seems to be the case based on the context there. It's surrounded by discussion of the eighth commandment there. But in any case, she was treated with ill will. She, passive, has been defiled. She has been treated in such a way. And notice how God sees this. For that is an abomination before the Lord. God holds idolatry as an abomination. God holds witchcraft, necromancy, diviners as abomination. And God also holds treating one's spouse in this way as an abomination. Now, certainly we think idolatry is serious. Certainly we think witchcraft is serious. Hopefully we think this is serious as well. How one ought to be treated is an important thing. And even it says there, connected with Israel specifically as a body politic, but also highlights the seriousness of how we ought to treat our spouses, at least in this case, husbands to wives. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. God has brought them into this land. They're meant to treat uh, their, their families, meant to treat citizens, and their closest neighbor is their spouse meant to treat them 
with dignity and respect. This is messy. This is difficult. But God is regulating uh, the laws here for Israel to punish the guilty and protect the innocent. That is the purpose of the civil laws. That is the purpose of the judicial laws. It is for that very reason, to punish the guilty and protect the innocent. That's what eye for eye means. That's what I wish our justice system uh, uh, held to. That's what I wish these judges would consider when they have all these repeat offenders, but they keep getting let off. They keep getting, getting out with a technicality. They kept being released back into society. And guess what? They commit again. The punishment does not seem to fit the crime. And in this case, God is protecting the lady in the situation from being treated poorly by her husbands in this case. Now, even in our modern times, divorces can get messy, right? And divorces can get messy over what? Money. How much people want. How, you know, spouses want to fleece the other spouse. They want to, you know, take them for all that they've got. Brethren, that ought not to be the case. Even though divorces, unfortunately, do happen, hopefully, you know, there's a move towards reconciliation as much as possible. But if not, there still needs to be decency and compassion when one engages in divorce proceedings. Now, I will talk about the permiss- permissibility in just a moment under the application But divorces are tough, divorces are difficult, and God gives some protection here for this woman. So that's laws concerning divorce. Let's then, uh, under the first point, uh, verses 5 through 7, we see laws concerning family and well-being. Now, I really don't know how these all fit together here, but, you know, verse 6 could go with verses 8 and following and 10 and following. That could be the case. Uh, but probably does center around the family and well-being, business or you know the marriage, business, and making sure you don't steal someone uh, who is the breadwinner or steal someone from a family. So that's you know commentators will differ on how to structure it. We had to structure it in some way, otherwise we have 18 points. So this is how I uh, structured it here. So laws concerning family and well-being. Notice. Promote and lay the foundation for marriage. Verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at, uh, at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. We already saw how they're exempt from military status in Exodus or it's in Deuteronomy chapter 20, but also public service as well. Road building, perhaps even the idea of keeping watch uh, uh, over the walls by night, making sure no one invades, that, uh, that type of thing. His focus needs to be on providing for his wife. His focus needs to be on laying the foundation for a good marriage. This is really good advice. When people first get married, they should certainly still have a job and still work hard, but really not do a lot for that very reason. To be able to lay a solid foundation, to be able to get to know one another. I mean, marriage is shocking. I mean, you're living with someone you ever lived with before. You're learning things about them. This is a good thing. And brethren, I was a bad example of this. When we first got married, I was working 30 hours at a church as an intern, taking full-time school and newly married. That was a bad idea. 
something had to give and the internship gave. I eventually went down to 20 hours and I eventually quit. I just like, I can't do it. I need to focus on my marriage and get my schooling done. And God provided for us, but it really should have, the, I really should have had the foresight to be like, no, I just need to focus on you know, two things, not all of those things at once. There's some good wisdom here we see to provide and lay the foundation for what, you know, providing the, the, the foundation, not just in a marriage, but families provide the bedrock and micro, are a microcosm of society. It's where children learn about authority structures, right? It's where children learn about, you know, genders. It's where children learn about roles, hopefully, if they're operating properly. And not only that, it's also a microcosm. Yeah, it's, it is a microcosm for society, but for Israel, it was also a microcosm of the relationship between God and Israel. Going back to that image of divorce, the idea of divorce comes up in the prophets. In Jeremiah 3, the prophet highlights how God is going to divorce the people because of the terrible things that they've done, all the wicked things that they engaged in. God, there's this language of divorce, and divorce, if you were to boil down to its etymology, just means to cut off. I mean, it's really sad when you think about it. It's, it's cutting off, it's chopping off, it's rending in two. It's a terrible thing to consider. And Isaiah, But Isaiah 50, also there's a positive, and it's highlighting how God's going to restore, and God's going to bring back. You know, there's a blessing and a mercy with that. Uh, that image, as sad as it is, but again, families are the bedrock and families are the microcosm of society. And even families, it's where daily bread, you know, why do families or fathers especially need to get jobs <laughs> to provide for their families, you know, to engage in enterprise? I mean, think about the Noahic covenant, be fruitful, multiply, that is marriage and have children. You know, it talks about the food that they eat, right? You know, you can have herbs and meat, enterprise, right? That's a good thing. Build wealth, provide for your family. Those are all good things. And then justice. The civil government's role is to punish the guilty and protect the innocent so that business can thrive and so that families can thrive. That's its purpose. It's not to provide programs and to provide for all our needs and to run our lives. That is it. So that the other things can function and flourish and so certainly marriage is one of those things notice he shall be free at home and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken and also too hopefully the reason he's not supposed to go to war is that hopefully he's not taken in his prime hopefully there's not a young widow there's some good wisdom from god in these blessed laws that he gives so build the bedrock for society but also verse six, they need to have their daily bread. Verse six, no man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. What it highlights here is even though Israel was a theocracy, it was not a socialistic society, right? They're still lending. They're still borrowing. They're still creditors. They're still debtors. There's still some sort of free market involved here. The poor would always be among them. And one of the ways to help them was perhaps the rich could lend to the poor. Now, when the rich lend to the poor, they're not supposed to charge huge amounts of interest, Deuteronomy 23, but they were also not supposed to take something that was essential for them, uh, for the poor as collateral. This is what the millstone is. Don't take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge. 
Where the millstone was, is typically every family had this. It was the place where the wife would go and take the flour and make her daily bread. They needed a millstone to survive. And so what is going on here, what God is saying here, what Moses is saying here, is we're not supposed to cripple the family who is already in a rough spot. They're already in need. They already need help. They've come and sought alone. Don't be some terrible Lord and Lord it over them in this way. So that's the language. That's the purpose of verse six. Don't take something that's going to cripple the family. And then verse seven, a prohibition against social murder. Again, how does this all fit with family? Perhaps again, it's taking away uh, important parts of said family. Uh, whether it's the, the husband, whether it's the children, it's, and notice uh, uh, that's probably why it's connected. I don't know. But in any case, it's still Eighth Commandment related. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die. The reality is that he, gave, he highlights here the death penalty. There are other places that talk about restitution. If someone steals something, you need to pay it back. Here, if you steal a person, the death penalty is prescribed. If I may say, as a Canadian who believes in the death penalty, I really think a kidnapper should get the death penalty. It is social murder. It is rending families all for profit. It's taking families and ripping them apart. It's, that's what trafficking is, isn't it? It's all for gain. It's all for money. It's all for personal wealth building. And again, I, would, I know I'm not going to, you know, march on, you know, Victoria and say, hey, you need to implement this, you know, law right now. But I would not be opposed to it if there's due process involved to be able to punish the guilty and protect the innocent. There are some countries that still do have it. And they're some of the safest countries in the world. But trafficking is a problem. There's even, I think I mentioned before, uh, surrogacy can be a problem in this way. Children are bred to be sold. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that a terrible thing to think about in this world that we live in? That children are made in a Petri dish, put in somebody, are born and sold. That is something that is real. That is something that has happened. Families are torn apart because wicked people are willing to pay to do wicked things. I would love the death penalty to be implemented. And I long for, you know, God just can forgive and God can save, but I long for God's judgment uh, in this way. It's terrible. It's wretched. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? But in Israel, kidnapping was punishable by death. And then you see that general reason at the end of verse 7, you shall put away the evil from among you. This is in Deuteronomy 19, 19 as well. Uh, remember, it, there's going to be evil, but there's a way in which they had to deal with it. Uh, get it away. Otherwise, they're going to be vomited and kicked out of the land. What happens to one happens to them all as a body politic. Certainly, there is application in the discipline of the church. First Corinthians 5, 13, you purge the evil from among you. Certainly there is some general equity application for society. Uh, all this is to protect the family. Marriage is to be preserved. People are not meant to be treated like cattle with, with dignity and respect.
I think all this too, in connection with marriage, really highlights the importance of the institution of marriage. It is a blessing. It is a creation gift that God has given. He's given it for companionship, preventing uncleanness, and procreation. And procreation is important for mankind in general so that we don't become extinct. And it's also was important for Israel as well as they advanced towards the ends of the earth or were supposed to uh, anyway. But it is an important thing. Children are, are a good thing. Children are a blessing, an important thing for mankind. That's why I think the left is trying to manipulate children in schools. You want to know why? The left aren't having children. So who's going to carry on their agenda, but they have to mold somebody else to do such things. You know, Christians and the right are having children at a greater rate than the left. So the left you know, maybe understands. I don't know if that's true, but that seems to make sense in my mind. That's why they're trying to corrupt uh, children, because they know their days are numbered if they don't have any children. So children are, are a blessing. Children are a good thing. Marriage is a blessing as well. But unfortunately, there is the reality of divorce. Now, the rule is God hates divorce, Malachi 2. But in a fallen world, even amongst the people of God, there, divorce is permissible for two reasons. Adultery, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, and abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, abandonment, there are a lot of things that can fall under that very thing. But even when it came to abandonment, what it meant in 1 Corinthians 7 is really the husband or spouse, I guess, or the wife went away. Nobody knew where they were and they were as good as dead. It's basically like they're dead. And the point of it is, is that divorce is supposed to be hard for a reason. We live in a society where divorce is very, very, very easy. It doesn't change the fact it's sad. It doesn't change the fact that there's, it's messy. It doesn't change the fact there are are difficult things, but divorce was supposed to be hard for a reason, uh, because hopefully, you know, spouses who are moving in that direction can hopefully find some sort of reconciliation, uh, but there are two permissible reasons and legitimate reasons for divorce, adultery, and abandonment, uh, but all this really highlights the importance of marriage, treating one another with dignity and respect, even in the marriage relationship. So that's laws that protect the family from financial exploitation. Let's then look at laws that protect the poor from destitution. Verses 8 through 22. Notice verses 8 and 9. Again, why is this one here? I don't know. Uh, but laws that protect society from disease, verses 8 and 9. The problem of illness, verse 8. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy. Now, leprosy probably isn't perhaps what you might assume leprosy is, but it can refer to any sort of skin disease, infectious skin disease. Um, it's mentioned, as it says there, you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you. This is Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. You see laws there concerning uh, how leprosy ought to be treated. Now, we're not against quarantining the sick, right? We're not against when you're sick, stay home, right? We're not against the leper who needs to be out of the camp for seven days or you know, outside the camp. For seven. We're not against any of that sort of thing. What we were against was quarantining society and shutting everybody down who's healthy. That's what we were not for. I mean, the Bible says, hey, you're sick. Stay. Yeah, that's, that's 
that's wisdom. But shutting everybody down, that was not the smartest thing in the world. And we're, we're seeing that. I mean, we knew that then, but we're seeing that uh, more more now. Yeah, we don't want it to spread, but, you know, okay, sh- shut down those the lepers, but they must listen. They must do what the Levites say. They must follow just as they commanded according to Leviticus 13 and 14. And they give a historical reminder, verse 9. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. This is Numbers chapter 12. We see them get a little power hungry, Miriam and Aaron. They speak against Moses because she has an Ethiopian woman whom he married. In verse 2, they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three come out, they're there, and God just begins to show the blessing and the privilege and, uh, uh, that Moses has had with him and how Moses is his servant. In verse 9, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. When the cloud departed from above, the tabernacle suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was a uh, leper. And she follows the, 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 the rituals there. She was shut out of the camp, uh, verse 15. And probably what the purpose of that is, is a, to remind the people not to go against what God says. Don't go against Moses. Do what the Levites say. Don't say, well, I don't care. I'm sick. I'm just going to go. No. They have to do what God has said, just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. They don't want to infect everybody else in society. I think that's pretty fair and pretty, you know, pretty, that's a one way to love your neighbors. You know, when we're sick, hopefully stay, stay home if we're able. Uh, So, yeah, so laws concerning illness and then verses 10 through 15. Laws that protect privacy and basic needs. Notice the privacy aspect in verses 10 and 11. The dignity of the poor still needs to be maintained. And so we see this in this situation. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. The poor may not have much, what he has cannot be taken by the lender. The collateral here is determined by the poor. The poor may not have much, but his home is still his casa. The home is still his place. And just because the poor is lending him money, the poor doesn't then get to own him in everything in his life. There still must be compassion. There still must be protection. There still must be that recognition that he is an image bearer. Christopher Wright says, more important than material help is the recognition and affirmation of the dignity of poor people, often through enabling and empowering them to exercise some measure of discretion and control over what they do own. So he must remain outside. It is his property. The eighth commandment implies that people can own property, right? The Eighth Commandment is the great argument against socialism. You shall not steal. God has given us certain things that belong to us. God has given us, even especially for Israel, God gave them uh, 
uh, inheritance in the land, which we'll talk about in verses 19 to 22. And they ought to enjoy that. Even if they have to borrow some money, they shouldn't be treated uh, less than human. And this idea of not being treated less than human continues in verses 12 and 13. Notice they got to keep their garments. Now, there are people who are poor and there's people who really are really poor. Verse 14. Now, if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. Verse 13. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down that he may sleep in his own garment. The man is so poor that what he gives as collateral is his own clothing. That's all he's got. And when nights get cold, he needs his garment to stay warm. Otherwise, he's going to get sick. Otherwise, he's going to die. Otherwise, the lender's not going to get his money back because the one he lent his money to is going to pass away. I mean, people die in the cold, unfortunately. It's a sad thing to think about. I know we've talked about people dying in the heat recently, climate change, whatever. But more people apparently die in the cold. More people die when the temperature goes down. Except, you know, the government doesn't want to say that. They want to take our coal and take our, you know, our reliable energy. They want to, but more people die in those ways. And I, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little political, but, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's just absolute utter nonsense. Why take someone's garment from him? And you see, treat them with dignity and respect. Hey, take it back to him at night that he may not freeze. When the sun goes down, Give it back to him that he may sleep in his own garment and he'll bless you. He'll praise you. He'll work hard for you. Wow. Thank you for my garment. I'll, I'll bring it back in the morning. Yeah. I'll try and pay back as soon as I am able to do so. That is the purpose of these laws is for protection. So the poor man isn't in a worse situation and not able to pay his creditor. Not a huge amount of interest, not the millstone that's taken, not, you know, you know the, the, the creditor can't come in and take whatever he wants, and not even his garment uh, should be taken in such a way. And notice the, the approval from God in this. And it shall be righteous to you before the Lord your God. Gill says this is not justifying righteousness. For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh living be justified in this sight, but it shall be owned and approved of as a good and righteous action and answerable to the intention of this law, which is that mercy should be shown to persons in distress. It is a blessing to, to them and it is service to God to treat the poor with dignity and respect. I'm not going woke here. I'm not going to you know, talk about critical race theory on the fall. I'm not going to do that. But we still need to treat the poor with dignity and respect. We still have to do that. There's a middle ground. We can't react to everything. There's still an element in society. We, uh, the poor ought to be treated with dignity and respect. There ought to be mercy and kindness uh, in the situation. And notice too, it's not, God's not saying, and Moses isn't saying that the one who's borrowing shouldn't pay it back. They're not saying here's a free ride. He's just highlighting the one who has giving the money needs to be compassionate. It's kind of a two-way street, isn't it? The one who's borrowing needs to pay it back, but the one who's lending needs to be kind and compassionate in that lending. So there's a two-way street here. And then notice 
this protection uh, of basic needs continues when it comes to wages, verses 14 through 15. You, and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, uh, uh, whether one. And the language of oppress here means with fraud or robbery. So one way to violate the Eighth Commandment is not to pay someone. Uh, who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Not just your brethren, but those who are uh, from another nation. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it. There are people who don't pay their employees or sometimes are more harsh with their employees. And perhaps the, the scenario in view here is a hired daily worker. And perhaps it would be tempting for a landowner hiring these daily workers to say, thank you for the work, get out, and not pay them anything. They could be more vulnerable. There was no such thing as a union at this time. There was problems, so that they were more perhaps susceptible to being treated poorly. So what Yahweh is saying, what Moses is saying is, if you're a landowner and you hire someone, pay them. Pay them well. And clearly the application here has to do with employee and employer relationship. Unfortunately, there are bosses who don't pay fair wages. And there are bosses who don't pay their employees on time. Brethren, that's unconscionable. Especially in light of the fact that some people might live paycheck to paycheck. Now, hopefully people can budget a little and not live paycheck to paycheck. But in reality, if they're needing it, you have to pay them. Unfortunately, I've had Christian bosses who like perpetually never paid me on time. I had one guy with the same, uh, the same uh, who I was working with. He had been paid in like three months. Now, the guy should have went and said, hey, can you pay me, please? And eventually he did. But that's not right. That is not a good thing. That is an ungodly thing. Lest he cry against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. It is a great sin against the people, and it is a great sin against God. This comes up later in the prophets again. Jeremiah 22, Isaiah 58, Malachi 3. Even after... (laughs) Malachi is a tough one because even after they were kicked out of the land, even after they came back, even after they should have learned, right? The people of Israel still did not learn. And they still exploited people and their work. And this comes up in James, James 5. I think James is the New Testament book of wisdom. A lot of Old Testament certainly alluded to in the book of James, but I mean, God is very, James is very uh, forward and forthcoming with what he says to the rich. (laughs) Come now, you rich, verse one, weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. 
And what's interesting when it when it when it's mentioned in the prophets about those whose wages have been exploited, the ones doing the exploiting still go to church on Sunday. They go to church on Sunday and they're praising God. And yeah, I guess that's good. They're in church. I'm happy they're in church. But they should still be paying their employees proper wages. That is an important thing. See how we can serve and how we can honor God in our daily life. A, work hard if you work for somebody. And B, pay your employees well. Commend your employees well. Not saying you can't fire employees if they're not very good. But, you know, for the most part, you know, we ought to pay up. They ought to be paid. Cries out of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter, preparing for the time when it comes. They've been oppressed, or they've been oppressive. They've been, they've been uh, exploitative. They have not paid as they ought. And then God does say, or James says to the godly therefore be patient uh, and wait. So there's an... <laughs> Employees need to be paid, but employees need to be patient as well. That's a very tough thing, but employers need to pay their employees well. And then verse 16 through 22, laws that protect and provide for the poor. Uh, Notice in verse 16, we see personal responsibility. This is a legal principle. Certainly there is a corporate aspect and corporate principle for Israel, that is, God will visit, uh, visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Uh, that is, sometimes the, the, the consequences of what a father does uh, has a bearing upon the people as a whole. Uh, God said he would rend, the, uh, rend the, the kingdoms in two under Solomon, but under his son. Uh, there is that aspect there. But when it comes to legal matters, fathers, the punishment should fit the crime. And the father shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. That is the legal principle. One must take responsibility uh, for what they have done. Now, that's an important principle, too, when you apply it in the New Covenant. Um, Physical descent is irrelevant in the New Covenant. It's based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so there is a is a is a uh, uh, spiritual application, if you will, to the new covenant that way. But as a legal principle, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. People must take responsibility for themselves. And notice verses seventeen through twenty-two. We see how the uh, stranger, the fatherless, and the widow must be treated when it comes to justice and when it comes to what they gather. Verses 17 and 18, uh, justice. We saw proper justice in 16 and 17 on the proper protocol there, proper witnesses, don't receive a bribe, proper judges. Uh, Here's how it affects the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Don't pervert it. Don't think because they got nothing, they can't pay. We're just going to, you know, run rough shot over them. We're going to steamroll them because they got nothing. That's not supposed to be the case. Nor And even two, Referring back to that garment aspect, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. We must not treat them ill in an ill way this way. And the reason being, verse 18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. You were once treated oppressively. You were once treated as a slave. 
you were once treated as less than human, do not do that to the stranger, the alien, and the widow. God has been generous to you. Be generous to others. God did not choose you because you were great, Deuteronomy 6, or because you were righteous, Deuteronomy 9. There's nothing that special about you, so other than that God chose you. So treat people with dignity and respect in your midst. So treat them uh, properly when it comes to justice. But also, let them provide for themselves. Verses 19 through 22. How the poor work for food. So you can talk about sheaves, olives, and grapes. Those are all descriptive of the blessings of the promised land. The poor receive an inheritance and have portion in the inheritance as well. Notice this isn't some government handout. This isn't some special package that we're going to have to pay for later through uh, inflation and taxes. This is something that the poor still have to work for it. There is dignity in working for it. He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheep in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. God blesses you, God gives you, and you give back in this way. And God you knows pleased to be generous all the more. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes or your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. You see, the widow, though the strangerless, the fatherless, the, the widow were to be treated with dignity and respect. And one way was to let them come and gather from the sheaves, from the boughs, and from the vine that's what they were supposed to do that's what they were allowed to do it wasn't a promotion of laziness there is that problem with government handouts people exploit that too right lazy people just won't want to do anything they want to play nintendo they want to smoke things they shouldn't be smoking they want that's what they want to do and they want to sit there and do nothing they want to be lazy and procrastinate they want to don't want to do anything so they take the government money that we're paying for with our taxes and they just you milk it for all they can that's what they do and that is not dignifying in any sort of ways. This is sometimes the problem of foreign aid. I'm not saying we shouldn't help people necessarily, but sometimes we can cripple people by taking from their society. And I'll tell you, explain it in this way. The reality is sometimes we like to go on missions trips, which not all of them are bad things to do. We like to go and maybe want to help build a wall or something like that, right? And we go and we help build that wall. Do we ever stop and think we might take away from the guy who builds walls? Like, do we ever stop and think that, that we're, you know, taking away from society in that way, the guy who builds such things? Or do we ever stop, let's go build a well on the other side of the world. Great. Do we ask the people that were there? You should be like, let's use the best engineers, engineers here. Great. But do we ask them there how wells should be built in that time, in that place? You see, foreign aid can be helpful, but sometimes it can create a crutch and remove the dignity that is given to people in those places. So it can be a problem, not saying there's not a time and place, wisdom and case situations dictate, but there can be a problem. Also, again, the problem of welfare, uh, just the way in which people can exploit and use that in such a way. The poor can steal from the rich because they don't want to work and don't want to learn how to be good with 
money. So that can happen as well. But those who are rich must be generous and make sure the poor have abilities to um, uh, the ability to come and gather for themselves. Now, I should say, I know I mentioned that boss who uh, didn't pay me on time. He did one time when uh, he saw a homeless guy, so he said, come work for me. He did do that. He offered him a job instead. So I know nobody's perfect, right? So that was a good thing, I guess. It just didn't, it didn't really work out. But, uh, but, you know, that's probably a better thing than perhaps, I don't know, there's, there's so much wisdom required in those situations. And, uh, but we, you know, dignity and respect needs to be certainly in the forefront as we deal with these situations. And notice the reason, verse 22. You shall remember again, you were slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this very thing. Now that you are free, free to be generous, and the poor are free to glean. You, Israel, would have loved a situation like this when you were in Egypt. You would have loved to be able to glean and take from the grapes of the vineyard and to take from the olive boughs and to take from the sheaves. You would have loved that. God has given you much. Now give to others in this way as well. And all this really shows the importance of compassion, but also the importance of hard work in society. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal, means we ought to be hardworking. We ought not to exploit the rich, and the rich should not exploit the poor. Employers and lenders must be fair, must be compassionate, must be just. Those who work must be hardworking, must be God-honoring, and must uh, seek to honor God by keeping the commandment in this way. All this, brethren, we have to appreciate God's laws to Israel this way. I know they're not quite a one-for-one, one, but the way in which he regulates for society, the way in which he's punishing the, uh, punishing the guilty, or supposed to, they're supposed to punish the guilty and protect the innocent, we have to appreciate those things that God is doing to protect the innocent in these situations. And I'll close with just one application to Christ and the gospel. There is a situation or a parable used by our Lord in Matthew 20 to highlight the generosity of God that far exceeds the generosity of man. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. One of the reasons, brethren, we as the new covenant people ought to be generous, generous with one another, generous with those around us as much as we're able uh, it's because of, because of God's generosity towards us in redemption. And I think this seems to be the meaning of this parable. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he agreed with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. He went the third hour, sixth hour, and the eleventh hour. He went out and found others, verse 6, standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. Whatever is right, you will receive. And then verses 8 through 16 deal with how the ones who first received the, 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 the hiring are mad at those who worked less in a day. All this is meant to highlight, though, God's generosity is not like ours. A lot of the times our generosity, unfortunately, is not uncond <laughs> unconditional. A lot of the times it's contingent. A lot of the times we 
expect something back, even though in the, in the initial, like we don't expect it back, but then we don't receive something back. So we get a little grumpy about that. And so we're mad like that first group. Wow. We only, we worked all day. We get the same amount as them. You see, God is generous to give mercy, forgiveness, and salvation to people who don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of the gifts that we give temporally, and we certainly don't deserve any of the gifts we have redemptively in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the point, I think, of Matthew 20. In Christ, we have an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, in the heavenly places, because God is generous towards us. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God, thank you for your laws. Thank you for your revelation to the people of Israel. Thank you for uh, teaching us about your commandments and what those look like. What is the eighth commandment? What that means? What that means in our families? What that means in society? Uh, we do pray, oh God, that whatever situation we are in, that we would be hard workers, we'd also be compassionate, that we would be fair, that we would um, not exploit, uh, whether it's the rich to the poor, the poor to the rich, but we would recognize, oh God, uh, the gift of work, the dignity of work, the blessing of work, uh, the gift of temporal things that you provide, the ways in which uh, there's kindness and generosity, or at least ought to be. Please forgive us for the times that we are not generous, the times we are so very unkind, the times we do not love others, uh, the times that we do not love, love others in this way. Please forgive us for those things. Thank you that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for your, uh, the exceedingly uh, uh, abundant amount of riches that you give us, the riches of your glorious inheritance that we might know what that is. And we want, thank you that we have, we do have that pledge. We have that Holy Spirit as the down payment of that. And we do pray, oh God, in this life, in, in our Christian walk, in our sanctification, we do pray that we would be generous, that we would be hardworking, that we would be fair, that we would be loving, uh, that we'd be good stewards with the money that you've given to us, oh God. And we pray for society as well as a whole, that the that there would be, uh, that the society would stop calling evil good and good evil. Uh, we pray, oh God, that there would be the ability for uh, many to flourish. Uh, we pray, oh God, that there would not be um, uh, crippling of people in these times, oh God. We pray that there would be uh, good money management, both from the top and individually. We know we need your mercy. Uh, individually, we need your mercy and grace to help us do this. Uh, but we pray for society as a whole that marriages would be strengthened. We pray, oh God, that there would be a, an understanding of the importance of marriage once again. And uh, we thank you, oh God, you do restrain, you do restore, and we pray that you do so in our land. But if not, oh God, help us to be faithful to your word and to what you have to say for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your generosity. And we pray these things.